Welcome to Spiro Avenue, and now your host, Justin Spiro. Hello, I am Justin Spiro. Thank you for joining us today. Discernment in sports. That is the subject of today's opening statement. Just last week, the Detroit Lions legendary wide receiver Calvin Johnson spoke out against his former organization, saying he was, quote, stuck in Detroit, and they had, quote, next to no chance of winning a Super Bowl. He didn't want to bang his head against the wall, dealing with all his injuries and a team going nowhere. Now, this set off a firestorm in Detroit with fans rushing to take sides between the team and its former player. Perhaps surprisingly, at least to me, the majority of fans seem to side with the same Lions organization that has tortured them for years on end. Now, just earlier this week, team president Rod Wood finally spoke out publicly on the matter, and he publicly announced a training camp invitation to Calvin Johnson, publicly announced that training camp invitation, and that is the key word, publicly. Hey, everybody, look, we want Calvin Johnson to come to training camp. Now, why did Rod Wood do this? Let's look a little bit beneath the surface. It's about controlling the message. The Lions took a public relations bruising with that Calvin Johnson interview last month in Italy. They got killed for it. People left and right were criticizing them and saying what a bad look it was for the organization to have a legendary player speak out against them. A legendary player decrying his organization, it's not a good thing, especially when the state of that team is not much different from the era he's talking about. It's just less than two years ago. They have the same coach. They have the same quarterback. They have the same key personnel. Not a good look for the Detroit Lions organization. So why did Rod Wood do this? It's about seizing control of the narrative. All the talk when Calvin Johnson came out and and said those words in Italy was how embarrassing it was for the Lions having this team legend come out and speak against them. Now, Rod Wood did two things here, two things by issuing that public invitation to Calvin Johnson. First, he took the high road. There was certainly nothing to be gained by getting into a war of words in the media with Calvin Johnson. Nothing to gain. It would have been a terrible move public relations-wise, and it would have brought quite a bit of backlash. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, Rod Wood put Calvin Johnson into a box. He had two choices. You can either accept the invitation, in which case Calvin Johnson looks like he's backing off from his public stance and acquiescing to the Lions' request, or alternatively, he could decline the invitation, and then he looks petty and bitter And thus, he loses credibility in the eye of the public. Maybe those things he said, it's just sour grapes from Calvin Johnson, and there's not as much validity to it. Now, I don't buy that, but that's how it would play. So this was a smart move by Rod Wood, and make no mistake, Rod Wood's publicly extended invitation to Calvin Johnson was a strategic move to manipulate the public. Now, there's nothing sinister to it. It's just effective controlling of the message. And that is what a good president does in any company. Rod Wood could have just sent Calvin Johnson a text message or phoned his agent or poked him on Facebook. He could have done any of these things to reach out and extend this invitation. What was the point of the invitation being extended publicly? It is damage control for the Lions, and it shifts the onus from the Lions onto Calvin Johnson. This was not an act of kindness on Rod Wood's part. It was a sharp guy making a disguised appeal to the media and general public. 
Now, nobody that I've seen in the media or amongst fans has even mentioned the strategy that Rod Wood is so clearly deploying here. And that, folks, means that Rod Wood has played this perfectly. So this week, the Lions seized back control of the narrative. They won this public relations battle. Hey, at least they are good at winning some things. So moving away from the Detroit Lions and that abysmal organization that drives many men to drink, we are moving on to our in-studio guest, and we are happy to have him. Former Detroit Red Wings trainer John Wharton is in studio, sitting across from me in our studio in Rochester today. He was the Red Wings trainer from 1990 to 2002, including the 1997, 1998, and 2002 Stanley Cup champion teams. And I believe he does have his name on the Stanley Cup three times. John, welcome to the studio. How are you? Thanks for having me, Justin. Pretty it's good. It's great. It's great to have you, John. Uh, you know, we we go back a few years, and uh, I, you know, I just get that on the record. I think you're a great guy from all of our experiences, and I'm happy to have you. Just Thank from a you. journalist perspective, I did have to disclose that I do know you, and I, yeah, I consider you a friend of mine. So, Correct. with that on the record, we will move on. I just want to get right into your career with the Red Wings. Just tell me, how did you get the job back in 1990? How did that come about? It's, uh, you know, sports medicine back then when I went to Central Michigan. Uh, I graduated in 86. And around that time, sports medicine was just really starting be- to become, you know, a thing. Uh, a lot of the so-called trainers back then were friends of the owners, uh, friends of the coach. Uh, I think uh, one of the f- former trainers at, uh, for the Lions or the Tigers a long time ago was uh, one of the owner's boat mechanics, actually. <laughs> so certification, athletic training, and strength and conditioning had, had re- uh, just really started to come around in the mid-'80s. And uh, part, of the, part of the curriculum as you go through an athletic trainer's uh, program is you do a six-month internship. That is actually your last semester. Uh, so if your grades are good and uh, your interviews are good, uh, you get to rank your top three of the clinics or hospitals that you want to go to, and those clinics or hospitals also rank their top three. Long story short, uh, I really wanted to position myself to work in professional sports. Uh, so tops on my list was the Center for Athletic Medicine at Henry Ford Hospital, and Dr. Collin uh, it worked out. They had also picked me as their number one. So, you know, it was in 87 I was there. And uh, three months after that, I was doing a summer internship with the Detroit Lions. So, you know, it, things happened really fast for me. Uh, I was fortunate to have some trainers who were the old school variety who actually took me under their wing. Uh, and you know, a lot of the, you know, a guy coming in uh, at 26 years old with an education intimidated a lot of the old school trainers, but there were some who took me under their wing, and you know I'm I'm grateful for that because <laughs> to be honest, I was really green. You know, I was really green, and just f- kind of flying by the seat of my pants for the first year, year and a half there. But uh, you know, that's that's how I get in. I was I, I tell people I was in the right place at the right time, but I was also doing the right thing. Are, so you, are you a little starstruck those first few weeks when you're walking into a locker room and there's Steve Eiserman? I mean, is that what was that like for you initially? I, I was because while I was at Henry Ford Hospital, uh, Dr. Collin was the team physician for the Lions, the Tigers, uh, and the Red Wings at the time. So uh, one of my jobs at, at Henry Ford was what they called their level seven. Uh, so th- this was their return to sport. 
So the Tigers or the Red Wings would, uh, when they were traveling, uh, they they would send their athletes to us, and I would I would actually finish off that level seven that got them back to the field. And uh, talk about intimidation. One of my first patients at Henry Ford Hospital was Kirk Gibson when he rolled his ankle. Oh, wow. So and they had, we had a gym above the Center for Athletic Medicine, and I would uh, side toss balls into a screen for him. And, you know, he he's dropping F-bombs. My first five toss, I had a, <laughs> you know, I was a catcher and I was a center fielder in, at Flint Northern. Uh, so I, I knew how to play, but I, I thought I was tossing these baseballs the wrong way, but I wasn't. He was cussing at himself for him missing contact on this little, you know, just a little smidge. And that really, that interaction with Kirk Gibson, uh, as brief as it was, really opened my eyes to how intense these guys and how serious this business was of, of professional sports. And it really it, it whet my appetite for it. I wanted more. Uh, I started, uh, I went from that point on, I was like, how, how can I get to the next level? Uh, strength and conditioning coach through the NSCA was a new thing. I got my certification within three months. Uh, Guillermo Hernandez, Willie Hernandez, took me to uh, Arizona with him to help him out from an injury and to get him in shape for training camp with the Oakland A's. So all these things were happening really fast for me uh, along about uh, the time where the Red Wings were looking for a trainer and they went to Dr. Collin and they said, do you know of anybody? And they said, you know, we've got this really keen young guy, John Wharton, uh, I think you should take a look at. But what they didn't know or what they weren't paying attention to was I, I was already doing the strength and conditioning for Steve Iser, or, uh, Steve Iserman, uh, Sean Burr, the late Sean Burr, the late great Sean Burr, if you ask me, he's a funny and good man, uh, Gerard Gallant, uh, Brad McCrimmon. Some, you know, so I was, I was around, and I, again, I was in the right place at the right time, but doing the right thing. So that's, you know, I went in for the interview. Uh, Brian Murray was the GM at the time. He offered me the job across the table, and uh, I said, I'll take it. And <laughs> this is how this conversation went. He said, uh, you think you want to talk to your to your wife about that? I said, yeah, you're right. Can I borrow your phone? So I, I called uh, my ex-wife, Jeannie, up, and I said, uh, I just took the Red Wing job. I hope you're cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you got the retroactive so, uh, stamp of approval so, yeah, there. That's, that's basically how that went. Well, I, I would assume she'd be supportive of that. From from 1990 to 2002, that was your career there. It just the memories that come to mind from that era, it's just overflowing. So many great players, so many great moments. But one of the darker moments you were there for, 1996, Caldwell Mew runs Chris Draper into the mm -hmm. boards. I mean, you had a front row seat for that. You were probably part of the Literally. treatment there. I mean, you were <laughs> right there. Right. So uh, this is the thing that has come up when people heard that you were on Everybody asks about Chris Draper. I think it just fascinates people. People want to know your story. What did you see with Chris Draper's injury? Well, what I saw immediately, I, I actually saw it happen. Uh, a lot of times the players will go into the boards and they're, they're, they're athletic and they're, they have a, a very good spatial awareness or proprioception. They know where their bodies are in space at all times. This happened so fast that Chris didn't have a chance to turn his head or you know get his face out of the way of that, of that board. So I, I literally saw it happen, and when I got on the ice, he had a four-inch, literally a four-inch dent, the shape of, you know, the edge of the, of the riser of the board. Uh, and I saw he, he did an interview with the players, I think it was the Players Forum or something, where he, he talks about the look in my eyes, like, you know, being, you know, shocking to him. But it, it, that look wasn't... 
I, I wasn't in awe. I, you know, I, I wasn't in awe of what I was seeing. I was just looking at him and looking at the other side of his face to, to try, and try to confirm what I was seeing. You know, I'd never seen a face literally caved in. And that's what it was. And the other thing that he f- forgot to mention uh, is I, I looked at him and the, it was before it had started to swell. So I could tell there was obviously fractures there because of the indentations. And I said, I'm going to have to backboard. I'm going to have to backboard you for precautionary reasons for your head and neck. And uh, he said, like, F you are, and got up and skated away. And if you watch the video, you'll see him get up and me almost, you know, grabbing his right arm and just kind of tailing him so that if, if he did pass out, I would at least, you know, catch him from another impact which happened very shortly after. Uh, he got into the dressing room, got on the training room, and then passed out even before the doctor. I still have the Polaroids. The uh, Mr. Illich was absolutely livid. Uh, to this day, I can hear him just reaming the officials in the, in the next room. Back then, the, uh, the officials' rooms used to be a lot closer to the dressing rooms of the teams than they are now. And Scotty Bowman and Mr. Illich might have something to do with that. I'm not sure, but... Uh, I can still hear Mr. I just going at it. Uh, so Mike Illich came down. I, oh, he was probably in a oh, suite, he, right? You no, know, one of the great things about that man was he he really cared about these players. He not just how many goals they scored or how much was he you know was he worth the dollar that they spent on Chris Draper, but he he, he took a genuine interest in their lives and in their livelihood and. Uh, their health in particular, you know, Mr. I would, would call me over to the Fox Theater or he would just pop in during a practice and pull me into my office and want to know what's going on with this guy or that guy. And is he getting the best attention, the best of treatment possible? And, you know, th- things like this that people don't know about Mr. Illich uh, that I don't, you know, he's the only owner I ever worked for. So I don't know if that is common practice, but I don't think it is. Do you know Chris Illich? I do know Chris. Yeah. Uh, what, are, what are your opinions on Chris? I know he wasn't in a you know managerial position when you were there, but what are your opinions on, he, on Chris? He was not. He was not back then. Chris has always been good to me. I helped him rehabilitate his back. Uh, you know those big blow up Swiss balls, uh, where you know now they're everywhere. Back then, you know it was kind of new, and I showed him how to use that, and uh, really. He, you know, he claims that it helped him avoid a back surgery. But really, I didn't have any interaction with Chris from a from an executive standpoint, so I can't speak to that. But as a man and as a person, he was he was always good to me. Let's let's go back to the Draper hit a little bit. I'm looking for maybe a, a picture of the aftermath because we all knew that culminated the next season in, in that brawl at the Joe. Correct. Between the hit and that brawl, what was the animosity like? Did you ever hear players talk about we're going to get that son of a bitch, or what was that like? It was never spoken. If if it was, it was in their little circles, but I never heard it in <coughs> in the medical room or in the in the dressing could room. Could you feel I, it? Could you feel I, it? I could feel that something was going to go down, and uh, it was always in the air. I think if even if you were a fan in the building in that era, you were just kind of waiting, you know on pins and needles and just hoping that it was going to happen. But the way it went down was the way it had to go down, you know, with with something away from the play with somebody like Igor Larionov and Peter Forsberg, you know, not two of the major combatants in the NHL, if you will, but that's kind of the way that if something was going to happen, that's, you know, it was going to be organic like that. It wasn't going to be contrived or it wasn't going to be 
I'm going to go kick this guy's ass. So you get that guy. I got him. It was never going to be like that. And I'm glad that that's not the way it played out because that moment, you know, March 26, 1997 was uh, the day a team became a champion in my estimation. I, I think that they really came together and gelled. You know, we stayed they brought pizzas down and cases of beer, and the guys were watching the replays till three, four in the morning. I, I remember that oh, night. Oh wow! It, it was the it night was, of the brawl. They were yeah, up till three or four in the morning yeah, watching the it, highlights. It was a it was a late night, and uh, it, you know that again. It it wasn't. Uh, it was a camaraderie thing. It was uh, you know, uh, you know we we finally got this monkey off our back kind of a thing. It was uh, you know slaying the dragon, if you will. But you could you could sense even in practice the very next day you could sense a different swagger in that room. I can imagine. Now, I mean, McCarty was obviously Darren McCarty was obviously at the center of of the brawl. I'm curious a little bit about the the brawler before him, Bob Probert. I know you were there during mm-hmm. Bob Probert's career. Uh, rest in peace to Bob. But I mean, just Great man. Uh, oh, I guess I'll ask you about that in a second too. But it had a reputation. I I never knew Bob Probert. Never met him had a reputation as a big partier, uh, getting into trouble on the road and whatnot. I mean, what was your experience with Bob Probert? Did you see the partying? Did you know he had a problem, anything of that nature? Uh, everybody, uh, I mean, you'd have to have your head in the sand to know that he didn't have a problem. And, uh, you know, Bob knew he had a problem. And our job was really to protect Bob from from himself. And, uh, you know, so we, we would do room checks. We would we'd even be out with him, you know, in public to try and you know keep it to a minimum he was going to do what he was going to do and uh you know later in life he got he got a firmer grip on that than than his time with the red wings but uh yeah there were there were a lot of eyes on him um as there should have been um my pair you know and a couple other people in the organization were charged with uh just trying to keep it to a minimum really because you weren't going to stop it so you were you were asked specifically to i I hate to use the term babysit but watch him babysit him yeah babysit's a strong term again i mean you're talking about the toughest guy in my estimation (laughs) ever ever uh ever play in the nhl so you know the word bob probert and the word baby don't really yeah i I get admittedly not the best idea a monitor is a good word i guess you could use the word you know monitor and again it was just uh not not to get him to stop it was uh, to keep it to keep it in check a little bit i want to fast forward a little bit off season of 2001 which my happiest off season by far my favorite athlete any sport doesn't matter. It's Dominic Kosick. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about this in the past. He was my he was my guy. The, my, the idea of my favorite team getting Dominic Kosick in 2001, I, I never thought it could happen. I was thrilled. Obviously, the team had Luke Robitaille and Brett Hall as mm-hmm. well to an already stacked roster. What was the excitement like in that building going into that season and that offseason? Did they know they had something special? I think we did, and, and personally, I'll, I'll tell you what that did for me is uh, I was going through some personal problems at home uh and i really was considering that summer of stepping away and then we got luke and we got brett and uh i was on a golf course and i got the call to uh be down to the joe you know it's the summertime so be down to the joe such and such a time we're gonna bring dominic hashik in for for a physical and i was like you want to say that again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got dominic hashik and of course we we lost another uh, one of my russian friends uh Vyacheslav Kozlov, but, uh, you know, getting Dom was, uh, for me, it was like, all right, you know, I, Kenny was wanting to 
negotiate another contract and I was like I'm ready I think I'm ready to do that deal right now so we, we did another year it turned out for a number of reasons uh, personal and professional to be my last but I think in, in from the team standpoint if you remember the year before that we had lost out in the first round to in LA in six games uh, very disappointing and humiliating uh, defeat another you know a first round exit for that you know got all too common for the Red Wing team with the roster as, as stacked as it was. So yeah, getting getting Dominic uh, and Brett and Luke definitely you know was a shot in the arm and a shot in the dressing room. For, you know, all around, top to bottom in that organization back then. I talked to to Luke Robotai back in 2008, and I was asking him. Just, I was probably annoying him, frankly. I was asking him <laughs> constantly about the 0102 Red Wings. He told me Dominic Kosick was a really weird guy. He liked him, didn't have an issue with him, but said yeah. he was an odd guy. Yeah. I mean, is that your experience too? Yeah. I've, there's, it's hard to find and to think about anyone who is more strange than, than, than Dom. And everyone's like, well, in what way? And then you can't even describe a way. He, he was just weird. You know, he's he just guy. a weird, goofy guy. Did you ever have any issues Great with him? Great guy, though. No, no, no. No, no issues? Uh, just eccentric, really. No, he hardest worker in practice. He'd, he, had, I don't know if you ever saw him in shorts and a T-shirt in the dressing room, but, like, you like, that's a professional athlete? No, he's really? Tiny. Oh, he's, he's like he's a, a twig. St- he's a stick figure. Yeah. But, you know, it worked in his favor. And uh, I've, you know, from a medic, from a conditioning, from a uh, trainer standpoint, I've never been a big flexibility guy. I think that you're either, you're born with that. I think uh, trying to work too hard on that sets you up for other injuries. So, you know, that's an offshoot. Dominic, obviously, with his build, uh, flexibility wasn't a problem <laughs> for him. And, uh, but yeah, he's just, just, a, just a weird guy, but a, but a super person. Uh, Hard, you know, difficult in the communication department. But once you figured out what he was trying to say, you could almost say it for him. I, I still remember <laughs> the, his press conference. <laughs> he, he sat down and they said, you know, what are you trying to do here? He just goes, I come here to win cup. <laughs> I just, it was like out of a movie. Yeah, but. And, he, and he did it. And, uh, but also, uh, you know, just a, a fun person to have in the room, too, because of that. And, you know, every guy in the dressing room had a Dom imitation. You know, he was probably... We, he, other guys we'd imitate this guy or that player and but dom everybody had a, had a hashik imitation it was it was just fun to be around then he's he's very easy to impersonate too he's got a very yeah. distinct accent yeah. and delivery i'm curious uh, steve eiserman's nickname is literally the captain and mm-hmm. you were there for over a decade seeing him uh, during his captain tenure was that dynamic challenged at all with Hall Robitaille coming in? You have 10 Hall of Famers on one team. Was there any issue or was he sort of – did everyone just fall in line? Was Steve Eiserman still running that locker room? Oh, Steve, Stevie from the time I was there, which, you know, was well into his career there, was eight, ten years into his career. Uh, that dressing room was his from the day he got the, the C on his sweater to, you know, the day he left uh, – and some say, lo- you know, long after or, you know, hopefully in the future it will be. But uh, I don't – Stevie was uh, – here, here's the thing. I get asked this a lot. Uh, I think I worked with those guys, and I think I was successful working with those guys because I treated them as an individual, uh, and everybody was different. So Stevie was hard on this guy or hard on that guy, not because – uh, he thought less of them, but b- 
because it's not the way Stevie would have done it. The guy didn't, he has a a central nervous system that he's not wired the way the rest of us are. He doesn't feel, pain doesn't register in his brain the way it's supposed to. So that being the norm for Steve Eiserman, he couldn't comprehend why that wasn't the norm for Sergei Fedorov or for Paul Coffey or, you know, and a few other guys that he, you know, would physically come in. Stevie would lock the door in my office and just give me, you know what, because so-and-so wasn't playing. And I was like, look, you know, I've, I've got to manage these guys individually. Uh, I will take your input. I appreciate it. Uh, it may happen the way you want it to happen. It may not. So I had to, I had to, I had to work with Stevie. He was obviously the leader in that entire organization, not just in the dressing room, but I also had to put my foot down in terms of him allowing me to do my job and for me to express the fact that I'm, nobody's built like you. Nobody's wired the same way you are. Nobody's wired the same way Nick Lidstrom is, you know, the two guys, Vladdy, I'll put them in, you know, three in a toughness category and an ability, an uncanny of ability to avoid injury. Uh, and then heal very quickly once they do have it. But not everybody was like that. So you can't, you know, I I was firm about it and uh, I'm going to do things my way. Uh, and I'm, you know, some of that got me in, in trouble. It got me in, got me in trouble early on with, with Scotty Bowman. He didn't agree with uh, me making false injury reports so I could le- rest uh, Larry Murphy or uh, Slava Fatisov because they're old as you know what. And so hold on, I got hate to interrupt uh, you, but we, so you made you made up false yeah. in, at their request. I'm guessing Larry Murphy no, no, told you. Uh, I just you, yeah. your own discretion. Well, I, you know that's fascinating. There's a thing. There's a there's a thing in in training, and if there's trainers out there listening, they know what I'm talking about. It's called periodization, and the goal with periodization is for you to pick a certain time in your sports calendar where you're going to peak, where your athletes are going to peak. Uh, for the Detroit Red Wings in the late 90s and early 2000s, that goal for me was June. It wasn't February. It wasn't April or May. So, yeah, I did I did what I thought I had to do to keep key players uh, peaking at the right time. So, you know, that ruffled some feathers, obviously, <laughs> in the organization and throughout the league and, uh, you know, to the point where I had some league meetings and, you know, nothing, nothing that I wrote down or anything that I did could be called false. It wasn't. I did it in a way that, uh, that it was, it looked good on paper and obviously it worked well for our team. I, I think... There was a fascinating little nugget in there a couple minutes back, and you, you buried the lead here, at least to me. <laughs> so are you telling me, did I get this right, that Steve Eiserman closed the door, sat down with you, and said, Sergey Fedorov can play and isn't playing? Is that Did that ever happen? Yes, it did. Uh, Often? Was that a one-time thing? That's fascinating. Uh, after maybe the second time, and that, that's where you know I put the kibosh on it. Uh, Sergey Fedorov for me was was the best hockey player I've ever seen. Uh, how he's not, uh, you know, ninety one's not hanging there up in the rafters is uh, that's an aper- that's a personal issue, uh, obviously between ownership, management, yep. and, and Sergey. 
uh, and I think that's more one-sided. <laughs> yep. I think Sergey would love that, to have his number retired, and he very much deserves it. But uh, Sergey got wrongly accused often of, quote-unquote, taking nights off. Let me tell you something. Almost every guy I ever worked with took nights off. You just didn't freaking notice it because they weren't Sergey Fedorov. Yep. You know, when he took a night off, or when he had to, or when he was slowed by an injury, or you know the the third game in four nights, uh, it was noticeable. And you can't like a guy of his of his caliber, a guy of his athletic ability, and really his physiological makeup is is rare, extremely rare. Uh, the guy's built like a racehorse. Uh, you know, he not a good marathoner. <laughs> So, you know, and, and not a, not a football player, you know, he didn't, he didn't like the physical aspect of it, but that, that's not a knock on him. You know, his, his game was his skating and his, his skill, you know, his ability to, to pass and shoot and, uh, you know, make plays. But so, yeah, and, and and I'm, I'm not picking on Sergey and I'm not, you know, Oh, you just call him the best player you've ever seen. Right. I, mean, I don't but, think you're but, being hard but, on him. But that, my point is that Stevie would do that with more than one person, and uh, and I don't, I didn't fault him for doing that. I, I think everybody uh, in the organization appreciated that he cared that much. It, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just all about him. Uh, you know, the the years, and I think this has been written about. You know the years that we lost out in the first round to Toronto, to San Jose, you know, he's in the back in Dr. Finley's room, you know, in tears with his wife, Lisa, you know, until two, three in the morning, you know, the guy had a a passion about winning and about success and he was going to do whatever he thought he needed to do. And sometimes it was my job that he thought he needed to do, which he didn't. So, you know, I obviously, I'm going to listen to every word he has to say. Uh, it's important. But obviously I had to stand up for Sergei Fedorov, for you know, other players uh, that he felt weren't pulling their weight or could, could be out there playing. But, you know, it's it, – and I love that. I love that part of it. Uh, and I think, I think the problem with, with today's part of that, there's just too many people in the mix. Uh, there's like there's six or seven guys down there, Joe Lewis or LCA, doing what uh, myself and Sergey Manatsakanov used to do, and that's that's not patting myself on the back. That's not saying we did seven people's jobs. It's a two-person job. You, you think it's overkill? <laughs> I at this think point. it's overkill. I think uh, I think there's there's way too many chefs in the kitchen. I think the right hand doesn't know what the left's doing. Uh, I think you see it over, you know, in baseball. I think, you know, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and and I'll wonder out loud if Miguel Cabrera's injuries have been managed yeah. appropriately. But there's enough know, that's, to question. Yeah, there. but yeah. but yeah, I, I just think there's 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 way too much going on in in, ter- in the world of sports medicine right now, f- and, and it's not all good. The one question I'll ask before moving on from Iserman, I guess the the dynamic just is so interesting to me. There was a, a perception among the fan base, even some of the media at the time, that there was a rivalry there in the locker room between Steve Eiserman and Sergey Fedorov. Was that anything you ever witnessed or sensed? No, not on a uh, not on a palpable level in the room. I think I, th- I think what fans 
saw and what media reacted to was a was a healthy competition. Uh, I don't. I didn't feel it. I definitely didn't hear about it. I didn't. Uh, there was no real backstabbing, but you know, nothing like that amongst the players. So, yeah, I I would chalk that up to to a healthy competition. Two distinctly different styles of play, uh, w- and and one one very tough leader. Steve Eiserman was a hell of a leader, uh, and you know, Sergey didn't always want to be led <laughs> the direction that Stevie wanted him to go. So, you know, but he's not the only one. That's just the only one that got written about. It's you know it's just an incredible dynamic there, and you talk about in your opinion, Sergey Fedorov was the best player you had ever seen. I hate to bring up the same conversation with Lugrobatai from two thousand eight, mm-hmm. but he volunteered. I didn't ask him. He volunteered. I you know did say I was a big Sergey fan. He was you know mm-hmm. my favorite non goalie, and he said that Sergey Fedorov was the most just purely talented player he had ever played with, which is interesting because he's played with Wayne Gretzky. Right. And I yeah. was quick to point that out to him. I said, you've played with the great one, arguably the greatest player of all time. He said he would take Wayne Gretzky over Sergey for an 82-game season. Mm-hmm. For a seven-game series, if both players knew their life was on the line, he would take Sergey Fedorov. And that's Luke Rovatai saying that's that. That's fair. And it I'll just blew I'll my I'll mind. I'll agree with him. <laughs> I mean, if Sergey, if Sergey knew that the Russian mob was going to kill him and his family if he <laughs> lost that seven-game series... Luke yeah. wanted Sergey over Wayne, yeah, which I just yeah. I, I'm as big a Sergey fan as anybody, but I think that speaks volumes. I want to get in a little bit of the maybe quirkier questions, but we had people throwing things out that they wanted to know. Right. What was the weirdest injury you ever saw? Strangest, more, most bizarre that you had to handle? Uh, Does one weirdest. come to mind? Uh, there's a couple. The one. Uh, and I think it was written about in Dr. Finley, the late, great Dr. Finley, uh, God bless him. Uh, I think he wrote about the time where Darren McCarty took a, a, a skate to the face and literally lost a chunk of his face on the ice. So we had to, between myself and Dr. Finley and Al Sabaka, we had to go through the snow in the Zamboni to, to find, and we did. We found this, this chunk of Darren McCarty's flesh and Doc Finley successfully reattached it to his cheek. Well, you pulled so, a piece of cheek from yeah, a Zamboni? From the Zamboni snow bucket. And Correct. reattached it. Absolutely. That's uh, that's the man Dr. John Finley was. But we, there's no but we found that. it. <laughs> there's but no we found <laughs> well, Darren, well, Doc Finley looked at it and he said, well, well where's the piece? And I'm like, Dan, I go, I don't have it. Because usually guys would come, a lot of times guys would come to the bench with their teeth in their glove holding it. So, and a lot of times, you know, a f- uh, half a finger would be hanging off and there'd always be the piece. So Dr. Finley's like, well, where's the piece? And I looked at Darren, I'm like, do you have it? And I was like, no, I don't have it. Do you have it? I'm like, it's got to be in Zamboni. They're doing the ice right now. So we, we went out and we stopped. I yelled at Al, stop it. Uh, he got off the Zamboni. Uh, they actually had scraped where the blood was. Uh, and threw it in the bucket they had scraped with a shovel so al didn't actually roll over it in the zamboni it had come up in the uh the snow shovel and that's that's where it was uh, at least it's going to be well preserved in ice if this were a football field yeah. maybe not yeah but it's unbelievable no. successful reattachment what, what do you make of darren mccarty's struggles that he's gone through you know we mentioned bob probert uh, darren mccarty's had issues you know gambling drugs alcohol by his own admission mm-hmm. i'm not breaking any news you know, did you, again, with same thing with Bob Probert, did you see that? Were you ever concerned, and what do you make of him today? 
Well, it's, you know, I've w- gone through some similar, you know, not to that level, uh, that level of, uh, of loss, if you will. But uh, so it's, it's hard. I'm definitely not judging. Uh, I don't want to, you know, be misconstrued as, as somebody standing on an ivory tower preaching how somebody should live their life. Far be it from me. But I always, way back when, it seemed to me like, and I, I think I, me and Chris Draper talked about this. It seemed like uh, a million people wanted to be Darren McCarty, and then yet Darren McCarty wanted to be somebody else. And then you saw, you saw that with Grinder in the music thing, and you saw it, you know, with with the gambling or whatnot. But uh, God bless him, he he persevered, and his comeback in 2008 to be able to come back and be a part of that team is is re- for me one of the uh one of the underappreciated accomplishments for for the red wings in their history because if you if you really knew how bad things got for him uh and really knew how hard he fought back and and what he accomplished to get back and to be a part of that team uh nobody would be talking smack about darren mccarty uh it was it was a heroic effort for him. What he's done since is uh, that's his personal life, and uh, you know I, I wish him the best. I wish his wife the best, and um, Darren has been nothing but good to me. I've got nothing bad to say about Darren McCarty. He's a very, very good man. Sometimes the best people are the worst on their on they're the hardest on themselves. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know I know if you like that as well. I'm, you know, you've said a lot of these guys are these great guys. Here. McCarty's a great guy. Probert's a great guy. Was there anyone in your career that was just a pain in the ass? That Paul Coffey. Paul Coffey. Oh, yeah. Tell, why mean, was Paul Coffey? Hesitation. He was just, um, I think it was the Edmonton years. Uh, and he, he came to us. He was still very talented. Obviously, he could skate circle. <laughs> a funny story was, uh, so I complain about Paul Coffey, but he had once left a paycheck on my desk. And I had opened, not not the envelope, he left the paycheck. So I could see how much he made. And I was like, Jesus, cough. We spread this around a little bit. When To his credit, he was a very good tipper at the end of the year. Guys throwing around a little cash to the guys in the locker room. Paul Coffey was probably the best tipper I ever had. But I don't know if the pain in the ass was worth it. But I, 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 saw, his, I saw his check on my desk, and I was like, geez, cough, come on, man, spread it around. His direct quote was, it's not my fault you couldn't skate backwards as a kid. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was funny, you know, but that, uh, I don't know if you remember, he had he had scored an own goal. Yep, yep famously or infamously. Uh, yeah, and then yeah. a game or two later, uh, he had got hit in the back of the leg with a puck right in the, in the calf, a direct shot that he turned his back on uh, now. It's the only one way you can get hit with a puck in the calf is if you turn your back on the shot. Uh, and I went to go over the boards. It's the only time this ever happened. I went to go over the boards, and Scotty Bowman grabbed my jacket. He said, don't you go out there. Because he, he was mad that he yeah, turned he yeah. turned his back to the play? Yeah, he, he the own goal and, and the way he, he took the block the shot. It was the only time Scotty ever said anything about me going on the ice to get an injured player was to, to leave him, just leave him there. I can't do it. I can't. So, I, I so went you win anyway. I, I, well, I had to do my yeah, job. But, yeah. that, you know, truth be told, that's the only time Scotty ever 
tried me uh, tried to get me to not do my job. Sounds like Bud Kilmer from Varsity Blues. Yeah. So let yeah. him let him ride in pain out there. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Well, I guess I I was going to to move on, but I want to ask about Scotty Bowman now. I mean, now I'm oh, kind of man. interested about Scotty. I mean, what was uh, we'll put him in experience? the dom- we'll put him in the Dominic Hasek uh, weird guy that weird, you like category. Weird guy that I love. Yeah, Scotty's the best. And another thing about Dom, uh, to his credit, of all those Hall of Famers who got inducted to the Hall of Fame. He was the only guy to call me up and invite me to the ceremony in Toronto. That's so nice. did you I go? Mean, that's I couldn't. I was still living in New York City at the time. Okay, uh, but uh, for him to to call and you know personally invite me, uh, it meant a lot to me. So so that I wanted to get that in about Dom. But Scotty, yeah, and uh, you know I, it, he worked obviously with a lot of people, and uh, you know one of his nicknames was Rain Man even before he even before he got to. <laughs> Even before he got to the Red Wings, but uh, I call him uh, crazy brilliant, or you know, dumb genius. We, you know, you can any oxymoron you want, but I, I think a lot of it was uh, was the w- he, you saw him the way he wanted you to see him, uh, the way he wanted you to see him, uh, because that way it was easier for him to manipulate you to get you know accomplish what he wanted to do and that was to to win a stanley cup so uh yeah he he was a quirky guy he's he had these weird mannerisms i mean i'll never get the image out of my head where you know we have a morning skate and then there's a few obviously five six hours in between so sometimes i would just stay in the in my office and get caught up with paperwork and i used to do that a lot until you know Scotty Bowman would get in the sauna, get all lathered up in shaving cream, and then come out and just, you know, butt naked right in my office, you know. He wasn't a tall guy, so <laughs> when he's, he's standing, you know, in my office uh, with shaving cream all over his face and he's, he's wanting to go over the injury report, you know, buck naked, I was like, can you just grab a towel, <laughs> Scotty? We'll, we'll talk as long as you want. Come on, man. Incredible image there, come too. On. I, I, I'm not going to ask for yeah. a descriptive image of that. No, no, no. Nobody. Yeah, it's no it's bad enough. It's bad enough, Justin. <laughs> yeah, Leave me alone. <laughs> so you you ended your career in two thousand two yeah. with the Wings. Did you did you want to leave at that point? I know you'd mentioned uh, the previous uh, offseason. To to be honest, I had uh, uh, my head got too big for that job. Uh, if if we're being honest here, and uh, I was a little too big for my my britches then, and. Uh, uh, alcohol was probably too big of a factor in my life not probably it was uh, let's be honest uh, so uh, the parting was mutual I had uh, I was separated from my wife and I had met this girl in LA and uh, you know I thought everything was gonna be rosy so uh, I wasn't fired we just didn't uh, renew we just d- decided to part ways and uh, you know in a way that's a firing in a way that's me not asking for my contract to be renewed you know you can see it any way you want, but uh, my head was up my ass, if you want to know the truth. So you regret so it now. I, I do regret it now, yeah. and uh, I probably would have had uh, – I never saw myself as a lifer there. I never saw myself as an NHL lifer. I always – you know, when I first got in it, I, I saw those guys in L.A. and in Montreal, and I was like, they're, you know, they have gout, and they've been married four times, and their kids don't talk to them, and – you know, I was like, I don't want to be that guy, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, 10 years in, you know, here I am in some personal, you know, crap. And, you know, it just, 
yeah, my head was up my ass. And if I did things a little bit different, uh, you know, it, my career would have lasted a, a, a little bit longer. I don't, I, I don't want to say a lot longer because, uh, Scotty and I did things our way. And I really knew, you know, beyond my personal problems at the time, if Scotty would have stayed, I think I would have stayed. Uh, but when I, I knew and Scotty said that night and whispered into Steve Eiserman's ear and, you know, that he's going to retire, I knew right then and there that my, my career was done because that Scotty and I did things a way that uh, ruffled some feathers in the league and ruffled some feathers in the front office. And, uh, you know, the writing there was on the wall. And at the time, I was fine with it. And looking back, yeah. Did I, re- did I regret it? Yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I wish I had my stuff together a little bit more back then. But, uh, you know, I mean, again, like you said, my name's on the Stanley Cup and uh, three Stanley Cup rings and, and, you know, memories. It's funny because I'll think about something or I'll read something and it'll seem like a long time ago or maybe like it didn't even happen. And then I talk about it and it's like it was yesterday. You know, sitting here talking about this stuff with you makes it real again. And, and I enjoy that. But uh, could I have done things a little bit different? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I wish I did. But, you now, know. Welcome to life, though. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, Who you hasn't? Held, right, Who hasn't? right. And you've held that, you know, you held that position for a dozen years. Uh, really, uh, you are the envy of pretty much everyone in your field, I would say. I mean, that is sort of the apex of where you can be, where you're with a championship pro organization, anyone that's mm-hmm. a therapist or a trainer or whatever it is, you know, anything sort of in the kinesiology realm, you were at the top. I mean, your yeah. your name is on the Stanley Cup. I mean, that's you can't really go, in my opinion, from the layman's, maybe you can, but from the layman's perspective, you can't really go any higher. And you were there right. for over a decade. So, you know, it's, it's easy to look back at, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, but I thought you lived, you know, a hell of a life and uh, an incredible career. And I'm jealous of what you got <laughs> to be there for. I can't even, can't even imagine yeah, how many stories we didn't get to. Oh, the stories. I'm, I mean, every song is a story. You know, it's, and what I mean by that is I'll hear a song from that era or, you know, uh, it's just something that sparks from a, from a Stanley Cup championship run or a song that was played on repeat in the dressing room. And it just bring back a flood of memories, you know. So... It, it's a picture, it's a song, it's, uh, you know, somebody, you know, passing away and you're like, oh man, I remember all the memories of, of, of Sean Burr or Brad McCrimmon, you know, or Bob Probert and, you know, it's all this stuff just comes, comes rushing back to you. But yeah, I was, you know, I, I was blessed. I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't anything special. I was a trainer who was busting my butt in you know 1989 1990 1991 to get that job and if anyone's listening because i get this asked i get asked this often how can i get that job and you you can i'm saying you can there's only you know 30 of them or in all pro sports what 120 somehow yeah but you got you gotta you gotta work at it. You got before I got the Red Wing job, I volunteered at the Goodwill Games. You know when Sergey defected, I was out there. You know I wasn't getting paid for that. But you know you you gotta be a gym rat. I did hockey camps. You know and the, I wasn't getting paid for that. But you you got to if you're diligent, if you put yourself in touch with the decision makers and you're doing a good job, you're gonna get noticed. Just get noticed. Uh, sending out resumes and you know just 
making a phone call that's not good enough man you got to build up your you got to build up your experience you got to build up your volunteer experience especially because people really look at what you're willing to do and not get paid for uh when they're deciding who they're going to pay for this or that so you know i get i just wanted to get that out there because people are always asking me you know how do i get a job like that you volunteer bust your ass get noticed really yeah, that's make what yourself it is. seen exactly you know, get that, noticed right right i we're gonna wrap but i do have one last question on yeah. where the wings are right now just i mean i believe you're still a hockey fan and you follow yeah. the wings at least a little mm-hmm. bit i mean you had experience with ken holland you were in the same organization for years i think the guys gotta go i mean i i, I, don't, I don't i'm not a guy that likes to call for people's jobs people have families there's implications i i know the other side of that but I don't like where the wings are going. What mm-hmm. is your opinion of Ken Holland, both from working with him and where he is now and his ability to run this team uh, anywhere but into the ground, I guess? You know, I worked with him, and I'm sure this is the hot button that people are going to talk about is I worked with him before there was a salary cap. So, <laughs> you know, getting, you know, walking, watching guys walk in the room, you know, the Brett Halls and the Luke Robitaille and the Brendan Shanahan's and, you know, these guys are just it's coming in left, right, and center. You know, that all changed in 2005, 2006. So I, I can't really speak to what it's like inside the confines of the room working with him. Uh, I know he's, he's a good person. He's a good family man. He's extremely loyal. Um, and I think what you're getting to is he's loyal to a fault. Yes. And I, and I will definitely give you that. Uh, uh, I'll agree with that 100%. Uh, and I, I, it, it seems to me, you know, looking at the team now from the outside is that he, he doesn't want to make the big mistake, so he won't make the big deal. Uh, and in the meantime, <laughs> he's making the big mistake. You know what I mean? Yeah, by, multiple. by not doing it. Uh, yeah. And, but yeah. that's as far as I'll go in criticism of Ken Holland because, uh, you know, I, I'm not involved in it. And the, uh, from a from a fan standpoint, are there things that I think he could have or should have done? Yes, or things that he shouldn't have done? Definitely. Uh, but I don't know what his options were at the time, and uh, I think a lot of people are quick to criticize even the, the trade yesterday of JD. And you don't know what Alavila was offered. You know you, that might have been the absolute best he could get for a guy who's, who's a, a you know impending free agent. So. It, it's it's tough for me in especially publicly um you know because when you do it publicly now you're on record is 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 really going after a guy who did a lot for me and did a lot for my family uh and did a lot for the team that i was uh, fortunate to be a part of so i'm i'm, I'm not going to really you know go any further than that well and I, I don't think i have no interest in saying the guy's ruined his entire legacy mm-hmm. you know people like to to minimize his role in things you know, he was the captain of the ship from the managerial side for a series of uh, unprecedented success, I would say. So it's not about, you know, besmirching his name or staining the guy. Right. I, th- I appreciate his, his contributions, but I just think the time has come. I liken him to sort of like a trust fund baby that had everything fed to him until he was 40, and then suddenly they said, okay, you have to manage a budget. And it's tough for that shift to take mm-hmm. place. Everyone will say, oh, they won a cup in 2008. I think they were riding the wave from the, the pre-salary cap era and just, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those pieces were already in place and under contract and whatnot. And so yeah. I, I don't even, yeah, I want to see something now and I don't think we're going to see it, but John, uh, 
it's been great. I appreciate your, yeah. you know, your candor you with some it. of this stuff uh, and, and for coming out and, and, you know, being, you know, honest about your own life and where were you at, where you were at, at the time in 2002. I, I think the, the people listening got a lot of information. I know, you know, we've spoken uh, about this stuff in the past and I learned a lot of new stuff. So I appreciate you coming out. It's, uh, you didn't really ask me talk. the one thing I was hoping you'd ask me because it's my most proud achievement. Tell, well, tell you, why don't you most proud be, the, accomplishment. be the journalist here. <laughs> well, what's your most proud accomplishment? Uh, one man game lost in 90, 97, 98 playoffs. Is that true? One man game lost. In the, in the entire postseason? All, all 20 games. 16-4, uh, Joey Coaster had back spasms in game four in Anaheim. Otherwise... Every other player that didn't play was a healthy scratch. And you weren't like talking. That will to, never happen again. No, I mean you weren't talking to like Balco as Victor Conti or there's no, 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 there's no, no, none of that. No I, little shot that, in the knee, anything yeah. like that. But 100 percent of the credit there goes to uh, luck and hockey players. <laughs> wow, I've always said hockey players. I mean, if you can, if they can stand up, they're going to play. Yeah, so uh, that's and that was the famous scene in Miracle. Uh, Herb Brooks and the guy saying, you know, I want you to be a hockey player, and he's limping and he goes back on the ice. But <laughs> I think that is the nature of hockey players. Correct. So John Wharton, longtime Red Wings trainer, his name is on the Stanley Cup three times, which is now three times more than Gordie Howe. Uh, that is a whole That's other sad. controversy, yeah. but uh, sad. But, uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. We are going to get Craig Custance on the line. He is the editor-in-chief for the Athletic Detroit, formerly of ESPN, great hockey writer, and has uh, some things to say about – his new project in Detroit. We're looking forward to having him on. We're going to call him right now, so we will be back in just a second. Let's get Craig Custance on the line. We are now joined by Craig Custance. Happy to have him with us. Craig is the editor-in-chief at the new Athletic Detroit, formerly of ESPN, one of their finer hockey writers there for a number of years, and most importantly, a graduate, a fellow graduate, I might add, of the best journalism school in the entire world, <laughs> Michigan State University. How are you, Craig? I'm good. I, I really think you buried the lead there. I think, you know, as a fellow Spartan, to go right off the hop with that. Uh, yeah, you don't, yeah, you, bur- <laughs> you buried the entire background. There's not one mention of Michigan State on your Twitter feed or anything. I, I feel like That's you're. That's not true. No. I I'm never see right any of it. That's not true. Okay. I think, I think you're making. I'm going I'm to go look right now. Craig, but if you were in not, studio. I will, I will fix it right in the middle of this uh, interview. I need you to like tweet out a Go Green. Craig, if you were in my studio right now, we're, it looks like the Michigan State football locker room. I mean, there's pictures all over the place. So anything other than like a constant mention of how great Michigan State is, is it going to seem underwhelming to me? But uh, well, it's, I, okay, I'm reading it. Editor in chief of the Athletic, NHL insider for the Athletic, Michigan State grad. Okay. I mean, what, it, I mean, you want me in face paint? Yes, I need you in. I need you in green and white. I need you to be Johnny Spirit running around with no shirt on, body paint right, actually. Face paint's not enough, but. Anyway, anyway, Craig, I, I'm happy to have you with us. And before we get into the athletic, I just want to touch a little bit about your um, ESPN departure. What happened there? You were there, yeah, sort sure. of in a tumultuous time. I, you left of your own volition, I believe. Is that true? I did. Yeah. So yeah. what was what was it like? I mean, was it a? Did you see the writing on the wall? Were you worried and you got out? I mean, what was the dynamic there? No. Well, I mean, it was it was a crazy time. I mean, and it was pretty well documented. Uh, I think people, not only in the sports media industry, but just sports fans, were were following pretty closely um, what was happening. And and you know, I, internally, you knew stuff was coming, right? Like I, in terms of the hockey group, we were all in the last year of the contract, so we were having some some all we would all have some conversations and say, hey, you know, we we probably knew um, there was four of us at the time. We probably knew all four of us were going to come back, and we were trying to get a sense of what that might look like, and 
Um, what I didn't expect was, you know, to wake up one day and everything was going to happen at once. Um, I, if you remember that day in whatever it was, mid-May, where, you know, I'm on Twitter and it was just one person after the next announcing that they were part of the ESPN layoffs. And it was, um, it was just an earth shattering day. And, you know, and then my phone's ringing and my buddies that I've worked every single day with for the last six years that, I mean, are basically family. And they're like, yep, I'm, I'm one of them. And, I haven't announced it yet. And, and, you know, then you're like, oh, my gosh, is, you know, am I going to get a Bristol number show up on my phone? And it was crazy, Justin. Like, I, I've never been, you know, I've been through layoffs, but this this was like, uh, this is pretty intense. Um, and, you know, halfway through the day, I get a text saying, hey, you know, you're fine, but you probably want to talk about where we're headed. And and um, it was right about that time when the athletic really um, kind of put their best foot forward. And I and, uh, you know, I got a, a good opportunity presented to me from ESPN that I that I really looked at hard. And, and I, like, I left on good terms. I, I had a great editor there, um, Dan Kaufman and Tim Cavanaugh, who I, I, I loved. And, and you know, they painted the vision, okay, look, I know your friends are, you know, it's, it's a different group, but we're going to make some hires, and this is, this is the coverage plan. And it was, it was, it was, um, it was an interesting idea. But not to, not nearly as interesting to me as, as the athletic, which I look I viewed and what was happening right now at the athletic. I really viewed it as a once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, when do you get to start a, scra- a staff from scratch and and you've got some VC funding um, behind you and you're part of a bigger vertical in other sports with kind of some fellow national writers that I that they made it clear they were going to hire and it was it was such an appeal and it was so different than anything I'd ever done in my life before that I, I really felt like it was impossible for me to pass up. It was way riskier, I guess, on some level. But then again, I, you know, I'd watch everyone get fired at ESPN, so I don't know how much riskier it was. My favorite two writers at ESPN for a few years were you and Katie Strang. So to have oh, you... Well, I appreciate that. Well, and, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, I was singing your praises openly well before you came to the Athletic Detroit and was very fond of Katie's work. I kind of missed her... A little bit when she was on the Tigers, I just thought you know she was such a good hockey writer, and I was happy to have her. Great. You know, she's she's wonderful, and also a, a graduate of Michigan State. We have to mention, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm obviously familiar with the Athletic, and I, I'm a fan of what you guys are doing in principle, uh, and a lot of it in practice as well. Now, you launched the Athletic about a month ago or so. I mean, give me the intro for someone that is not familiar. Like, what are you guys doing? What are you about? You know, sell me on the Athletic. Yeah, so it's it's a um, subscription-based sports media startup, and you know what that means is there's there's no other revenue streams except for our readership. So there's no ads, there's no video, um, there's you know so you're not getting the pop-up ads, you're not getting bombarded with you know polling or whatever before you can read a story. Um, it's a really clean app and a really clean website, and it's the, you know the the revenue is generated strictly by from our readers and what what that means is a couple of things is is we're basically beholden to the reader and and, and communicating with them and interacting with them in the comments and i've already, you know we've already run a number of stories where readers were like hey you know what, what about this and i'm like great and we'll get a writer on it um it, it has to be like that because if they're not if our subscribers are subscribing for a month and then they're bailing then it's it's no good and, and we want to we want to build um, so yeah, so it's, it's kind of interaction and, and part of it, Justin, is it means we have, have to have a little bit of a, or fairly different look than 
than the kind of the traditional media in this market and in all the markets we're in. Um, so, so it's not game stories and it's not, you know, quick, it's, you know, it's, it's not aggregation, um, not quick reaction. It's, it's more well thought out analysis. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example, you know, the JD Martinez trade goes down, Katie Strang starts reporting it and getting in touch with, uh, you know, league executives and scouts and thinks it out. And, you know, rather than trying to turn something quickly as, as we've basically been trained to do for years, it was, let's report this out a little bit and then have a more in-depth analysis first thing in the morning for, for our subscribers. And, and, you know, I'm handling it the same way um, on the hockey side and the people we're in conversations with to, to hire full time, um, understand that's what their expectation is going to be. Now, and you, you've encountered some, I would say, harsh critics of the model, uh, just the the paywall and, and whatnot. And yeah. At the end of the day, my take is if enough people like it, you're going to be successful. If you do an, a good enough job, people will pay for a good product. And I'm curious, you know, you're, you're still in the infancy stages, but are you satisfied yeah. with the early returns, with the early uh, sort of response and subscriptions? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, Justin, we're thrilled. And it's it, I mean, it, it's completely justified the kind of the blind faith that we had in the market. Because I, you know, I grew up in this area, so I knew this was a, a great sports sports town. What my concerns was was not so much the fans; it was the teams. I'm like, what what teams really, you know, have juice right now? Where, you know, especially launching in June and July, I'm like, are, are Tigers fans and are Red Wings fans really going to be responsive to this? Because that's, you know, kind of had a sense that's where we were going to go early, um, and and they really they've responded incredibly. Like, our, we're outpacing the other markets in this kind of the same at the same time and we're doing it i mean we're there's two of us full time like we're really like being uh, deliberate in who we hire because um a because we're a small shop and if, if we get one of the hires wrong it's it's going to be it's going to be crushing for us right um so we're being deliberate in who we bring in and also because they have to have a unique voice and and bring something different to the table um and and that's hard to find and we're getting input from readers and who they like and um, but yeah, the early returns have been incredible and it's completely justified the faith that we had in this market. I, I thought you had a really well-written piece on Ken Holland to launch the website, but I, I have to admit I had a little bit of an issue with certain aspects of it. I mean, I'm not going to get into the, my issues with what he said because uh, he's not on the air right now, but I, I, right. Sensed that, I sensed a little bit that you were excusing Ken Holland. You said, you know, it was, quote, water under the bridge the last few years of uh, what I think is ineptitude in, in management. I mean, where, where do you stand on this? I mean, do you do you feel that Ken Holland is somehow absolved? I, I, th- I thought you were a little soft on him, I have to be honest. No, well, look, you know, I, what I'm trying to do is an honest evaluation in, in that story, and what I was trying to do was to really project forward and try to identify what either his plan is or, or what it has to look like for it to succeed. And, you know, we can have debates about whether or not Ken Holland should tear it down, um, which – Believe me, I have, um, you know, often with, with people inside the organization and, and, and they, they understand that that's out there. And, and you know, we kind of go in circles and argue about it. But what I was trying to do in that piece really was, you know, that we've, we've gone, you know, that's been debated ad nauseum. What I was trying to do is saying, look, OK, they're not going to tear it down. Like, they've made that clear. And that's what the, the voice of the GM is saying. So if they're not going to tear it down. What is what does this plan have to look like to succeed? And and one of the questions I've asked because we've seen other models where you tear it down and, and, it, and it works, and obviously we've seen where it doesn't. But I'm not sure. It, it's hard to find examples of where teams do what the Red Wings are trying to do. I, I think it's it's 
it's a hard it's a hard thing to do and compete and also try to bring in young talent at the same time. And so what we were trying to do in that piece particularly was was identify how how it would look if it were to succeed and and basically say it's still as much a long shot as tearing it down on some level. And I thought you made the the right point in the end with that article. I mean, you basically said that. Uh, they're in this sort of purgatory where they're not drafting at the top of the draft where you can land the franchise center and the franchise number one defenseman and whatnot. So I I think you came to the right conclusion. It's just, I'm wondering, you know, at what point from an editorial standpoint, you know, you're the editor in chief for this new publication. Where do you stand on calling for a guy's job and saying, you know, are you comfortable doing that personally? Are you comfortable with someone on your staff saying, look, for X, Y, Z reasons, Ken Holland or any other managerial you know, figure in town has to go. I mean, are you comfortable to make that leap? Not specifically with Ken Holland, but just as an editor with anyone. Will you ever be calling for somebody's job? Yeah, I, well, I mean, that's going to be up, up to the, each of the individual writers. And I think, you know, what, what I tend to do as a writer is I try to be as honest as I can with where things stand, try to give as much inside information as I can present. And... And, you know, not necessarily call for call for the head, but if it's warranted, then then yeah, you go down that path. And um, am I going to do that on story number one when I'm jumping into the market? And you know, uh, Fair point. going from national, probably not. Fair but point. Like, I, I, you know, I'm still in, in a very much as I form my opinion because I, I'm going from covering 30 teams to one, um, getting a sense of of you know how good the the young defensemen that are coming are and how good are these young forwards and and um you know you have people in the organization saying hey this guy could be that guy and you know you know what is anthony mathis ceiling and i'm you know i'm diving into that full bore right now um after you know it's when you go from a national to a a local beat um it's it's a different animal when you're doing a, a national beat you can you can kind of parachute in right in the story and you jump in and you get kind of good access and you, and you, and you dive into it. Um, when you're doing it locally, you're living and breathing it, breathing it every day and you're really able to get more in depth into it. And now you're getting into the depth chart in Grand Rapids and you're getting into the last couple drafts. And, um, you know, that's kind of the phase and where we're at right now. And I'll guess, I mean, you sat in a room with Ken Howe and you sat in his office, you interviewed him, you spent, you know, a certain amount of time with him or enough to get a pretty good story out of him. I'm curious, just your opinion. I'm sure he didn't say it to you, and why would he? But from your feel, does Ken Holland, is he in a position where he's just managing essentially to save his job? He's a, a lame duck GM. He has no contract beyond this year. Do you think he is truly looking out for the long-term interests of the Red Wings, or do you think there's a little bit of self-preservation where he's talking about, I need to make the playoffs in year one of Little Caesars Arena? I think it's a fair question. Um I, I, here's the here's the question to me is would they be approaching this season this way if he was on a seven year deal right versus a a one year deal yes and so I think that's a very fair question and I don't have a great answer to that but what I would say is um, if you're the owner I think at some, at some point you move up the food chain and you look up at the owner and you say okay either. Um, if this is if this organization is at a point where you we need to start thinking about five years down the road, how good of an idea is it to have a GM who who has no idea what he's doing after the season, and how good is it to have a coach who's who, who really feels like he's coaching for his job, right? And uh, like I, I think you know, there's a lot of questions about Ken Holland. I think you start to question. Um, 
I think the ownership's putting them in a tough spot in that regard. Craig, you know, I know you have sources all over the league, and you're one of the finer hockey reporters in the business. You know, we had uh, my friend Jack Johnson, uh, Columbus Blue Jacket defenseman, on the air last week, and I asked yeah. him specifically about the Detroit Red Wings and the perception around the league if it's been somewhat diminished by the last couple of years and if the uh, glimmer is off a little bit on where it was from the first, you know, seven, eight years of his career when things were so good. I mean, you talk to people. What is the sense from the people you talk to? Is it, Are the Detroit Red Wings still considered a premier franchise, or in your opinion, and the people you talk to, has the luster kind of come off a little bit? Um, no, I think people. I think people still re- respect the Detroit Red Wings. I, what I don't, you know, there used to be this feeling when teams would walk into Joe Lewis and they would go down that hallway and you're looking at the the walls and it's it's the Stanley Cup rosters. I don't know if you've ever been like outside the dressing rooms yes, where yep. they have it on the walls where it's all painted and and like I would watch teams walk in and players would you know they'd stop and read it and right, I mean very intentionally right above the visiting dressing room above the door is is a list of all the Stanley Cup wins and I think there was nights where the Red Wings had already won before they took the ice right like you know we're not recently but five six years ago and I, and I think that's gone like that 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 kind of intimidation that the Red Wings were the best team um and one of the best franchises in the league I it's it's gone just because of where they are in their cycle, where parity is in the NHL. The NHL is evolving into a league that's probably more like the NFL than the NHL, where you're going to have two, maybe three elite, really good teams. And right now that's Pittsburgh. Toronto's on the cusp. And, I mean, who, who knows? I think I would guess Tampa. I like what, what they've done. Um, and then you just have everybody else. And you're going to have teams rotating in and out of playoff spots the rest of the way and, and hoping to go on a run like Ottawa did. Um, so, yeah, there's still a respect for the Red Wings, but they're, I mean, it's its not what it was five, six years ago. Yeah, the aura of invincibility is the aura is gone. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Right. Now, if they find themselves on the outside looking in on the playoffs for the second consecutive year after going 2,032 years without missing the playoffs, uh, do you see Ken Holland coming back? Is there any way he comes back if they miss the playoffs again? Um, you know, I don't have a great sense. I've never, I haven't sat down with, with, um, Chris Gillich and, and had, had a sense, but I can tell you, um, I, yeah, I probably would be surprised. And, and look, I, I really think that the, um, management now has a pretty, um, realistic outlook. Like, you know, in, in that story that you first mentioned, like they, I said, look, there's a couple of options that this can go and, and they're very well aware of it. There may be a point where, um, either Ken Holland's moved upstairs, kind of like um, Jim Jimmy Devolano, and they bring in another voice. There may be a point where everyone just kind of shakes hands and says, "Hey, it was a heck of a run," or you know, and, and they go the other way, or something transpires where Ken Holland gets a contract extension. But if if it you know really goes sideways this year and and they look kind of listless and, and without direction, then yeah, I I would be surprised if the same group is brought back in this form. I wrote an article a few months ago talking about Comerica Park when it opened in 2000. The Detroit Tigers were terrible uh, for the first several years there. And they had that first-year bump in attendance where as bad as they were, they drew a lot of people. They had Juan Gonzalez, just a glimmer of the new stadium. My fear, if I'm the Detroit Red Wings, and I know this is concerning to them, is that they are going to be drawing flies by the end of the first year in that new sparkling arena if this team still stinks. I don't see any way they make the playoffs. But, again, I guess that's just my editorial opinion 
Speaking of which, I, I'm curious for your editorial opinion on something. Just as an editor, you're an editor-in-chief. You're in charge of a lot of people now, uh, yeah. journalism degree. I'm curious, and maybe this is a pet question, but did you hear anything about the Drew Sharp plagiarism scandal that we broke um, at the DSR in 2015? No, I'm not. I, I don't know. Okay, well, I, I guess I'll just ask you point blank if, if you, and this will be hypothetical in your situation, if one of your writers were to ever be caught plagiarizing, what would you do to them, Craig, as the editor-in-chief? Yeah, I'd probably have zero tolerance for that. Do you, I, okay. like, yeah, You'd let him go. That's I, good I, to know. I, I don't know. Like, I can't imagine this day and age a really good excuse for that. Well, it happened at the Detroit Free Press. I know you are, like, the second busiest person in the world behind Donald Trump when he's not golfing. But uh, if you get a chance, I would. You can just Google my name and Drew Sharp. Sure. It'll be it'll be on uh, the DetroitSportsRag.com. But uh, we okay. broke that story on Christmas Eve of all days. Aren't I a swell guy? But um, <laughs> yeah, I was just curious where, you're, where you stood on that. I had hoped that you had read it, but uh, no problem. I mean, really, the Detroit Free Press has such a bad track record with this stuff. Mitch Album making up sources for a Michigan State tournament game years ago and keeping his job. Drew Sharp getting caught red-handed plagiarizing, admitting it, that we had the smoking gun, we broke the story, he had a hush-hush suspension. So I'm just yeah. I'm just going to say I, it's nice to hear an editor in town say flat out that someone does that, I mean, with that much evidence where it's not even in dispute that they're going to be gone. I, I'm a fan of what you guys are doing. I'm not a fan of every writer you've brought on. I'm not going to name names, but, um, you know, you have <laughs> you have uh, yeah. well, a couple dozen now, so, I mean, whatever. You're not going to well, love Well, let, let me say this. I'll say this to any listeners. Um, we've, and, and I, I, I'm, I'm proud of the work that's being done now, but we're also in the, in very early stages and, and you know, a year from now, we're going to have our full staff and we're going to be cooking and, and it's going to, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're making it work right now with Katie Strang and I as the only two full timers. Um, so we're, we're really trying to get a feel by giving some people some opportunities and we're doing a lot of kind of high level negotiating with with full-time people as well. So it's it's certainly a work in progress right now, and we, we really appreciate the support people have given us and, and the time as we start to build this. Well, you and you and Katie are like this beautiful rose, and at the bottom of you there's like a lot of kind of thorns and dirt. I mean, I, not everybody, but you have some, some people on there that were, you know, D and E list journalists in town. Again, I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to put you in that position. But, you know, I, I do hope just as I am a fan of what you're doing, I'm a subscriber myself. I've given up away subscriptions to your service on, on my Twitter account. So I like what you're doing. And I think you are two of the finest writers in the business. So I get that out front. But I do hope you'll use a little bit discernment, just my opinion, you know, with who you put on there. I think you have a, a couple uh, bloggers there that um, you know, they're nobody really likes them and they have a bad reputation at down. But Craig, I'm not trying to be a bad guy, but uh, you know, I, I do hope that that final staff gets a little bit stronger. And, and you and Katie are just fantastic and just great technical writers, great reporters. I've always enjoyed your work. And there are people under you. I, I know I will mention it because it's a nice thing to say. Uh, Prashant Iyer has been yeah. uh, on your page a couple of times recently. I mean, that's the kind of guy you want to get. You want people that are, and again, not to tell you your business, but as a reader, what I want to see is people who are smarter than me. And that, that not that it takes that much, but Prasant is, is, a, is a really bright <laughs> yeah. guy. And, you know, I, I want you guys to make us yeah. smarter. That's your, that's your goal, right? I mean, you, you want to be the sort of higher brow publication. So to be that, you can't just, yeah. again, if I'm telling you your job, you can't just go and pick from sort of the the garbage bin of Detroit blogs. I mean, there's there's some guys on there that are they're not the best and are really not up to your standard. And 
you know, I, I well, I'll be, we'll, we'll have to talk offline because I don't know. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be I'll be if, very if frank with you, Craig. Code, I, I, I will be very frank with you. And, you know, again, I just don't want to put you in a position to defend people no, on the show right that. now. I, that's you know, I'm, I'm not in the business of doing that. And for you even coming on, we are grateful. I know how busy you are, but I, I am a fan of what you're doing. I do suggest people will give it a shot even for a month. I think it's what, like four bucks for for one month or something, something like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, look, it's... Justin, to your, to your point, look, I think people have a lot of um, opinions, and I think there's a lot of discerning readers in Detroit. And, and you know, we're, we're launching now, we're experimenting, we're still, you know, negotiating with people that we're going to hire full time. Um, and we want to we hear from people, um, you know, good and bad. Like if, and I would encourage readers to, you know, send me an email or just, you know, let me know and be like, I really enjoyed this story. And, this one isn't up to my standard, and, and we certainly hear from it. And, and look, I, I encourage that interaction because, again, like I kind of going back to the initial point, we, like you and, and our readership and our subscribers are, are paying the bills and keeping the lights on. So I take it seriously. Like uh, I'll say that much for sure. Well, you should. And, and Craig, it's you know considered a compliment to you. I you're you're too smart and too good for some of these people that have been appearing on your website the last couple of weeks. And again, it's, it's certain bloggers that I think are um, questionable from a journalistic uh, credit, you know, credibility standpoint where they have questionable ties. We'll talk a little bit off air, but questionable ties to these teams <laughs> where enough. they are apologizing for the teams. I, I would like to see, this is something I've been begging for, for two decades now in this town. The, the journalists yeah. are too friendly with the teams, they're too friendly with coaches, too friendly with ownership. They're so afraid to criticize. The Detroit Lions writers in this town are phenomenal. They are an exception to this rule. But if, for you guys to be different, you have to be willing to call a spade a spade and say that this manager or this coach or this player or whomever needs to go. And it's not about taking food off people's tables or being mean or vindictive. You make the argument, and, and that's that's what you know, you're know. you saying you want to know a subscriber's opinion. I am a subscriber. Yeah. That's what I want to see out of you guys. I want to see the difference because if if you're just smarter than the average media member, that you know that's wonderful and that is an upgrade. And it, you know if you're clearing that bar, wonderful. I'd like to see the bar a little bit higher where you show the spine that has been so lacking in this town because the thing that is lacking in this town, it's two things. It's intelligence. You guys have that in spades. You have some really smart people, including the two at the top, you and Katie. So you got that. I think you're doing great on that front. What we need to see from you is a little bit of the spine. That's the second component that has been lacking in this town for years. And it, I'm not I'm not saying that you guys are necessarily lacking it because you are, again, in your infancy stages. Your, right. bo- your book is not written yet. Chapter one is not done yet. So I'm not you know saying that this is what you are, but I am saying what I'd like to see from you going forward just as a publication is a little bit of the spine. Be a little bit edgy and, again, not mean. Don't call anyone a name, right. but just say what needs to be said. That is so lacking in this town, and I hope we see it from you guys. Here's what I'll say to that. Like, we'll never be, um, like, hot take central at, at The Athletic. And, that, like, that's not the, the MO. And, and so it, it's going to be a lot of analysis-driven. It's going to be a lot of long-form, well-reported storytelling. Um, and if a writer feels strongly that they feel that they have to call for a job, and that's what the, you know, for whatever reason, then they will have the green light to do that. Um, but, like, one of the things is, you know, there's a, in other, you know, media entities, there's a lot, there's a lot of opinion out there, you know, where people just kind of fire off their opinion. And, you know, and I think that's, a, you know, that's an easy way to, to go about, about doing business. I think it's harder to do kind of hard fact driven analysis. 
Oh, it is. Anyone know, can fly off the handle. Right. I think. Right. Right. Um, so yeah. So I, like, we're certainly not going to be like where people are going to be turning for their hot takes. But I, I don't. You know, I, I think if if there's criticism to be had, and I look, I think we've. If you look at some of our analysis, we have been critical. Like it's it's certainly not just like blind. Like everything's great, and um, especially you know a lot, a lot of the numbers driven stuff. It just they don't lie, right, Justin? Like you you can't escape the truth when you're kind of breaking it down that way. Right, and I agree. And I, again, it's not a blanket criticism of every piece that's ever been up there. I mean, there have been criticisms out there, but on your page, I don't want to conflate having a spine with being a hot taker because those are two different sure. things. I mean, just skip Bayless wants everyone to die basically. And you know, <laughs> that's a, that's wonderful. Good for him. And he's made a lot of money doing that. I, I, yeah. I think you can have a spine and you said, you know, we're more long form and analysis. I will write for free an article that is very long and very analytical, giving you lots of numbers. Why Ken Holland should be fired. So, you know, yeah. and should not be. So again, I get that you want to be analytically driven it, it, they're not in conflict. They're not mutually exclusive where, oh, we want to be long form and analytical. And, sure. we, you know, I, so I think you can balance that. And again, you know, you've gone uh, 102 miles farther in your career than I have. I mean, I basically, I'm sitting here in my basement right now. So if you want to, you know, roll your eyes at me, I wouldn't blame you. But I'm just no, telling you, as look, a subscriber, Jeff, I, that's I, what I, I want. Like, we want feedback and we encourage feedback. And if it's in constructive and, you know, we're, we're, we're charged with being honest. We want to be honest with because I think people can see through it clearly. You you mentioned there's a frustration there, and I and I, you know, I hear that from subscribers, and and so you know we're we're going to charge our writers of being honest. Yeah, I think, and I think you know you're going to grow a lot like any operation does, and you have the right people in charge, yourself included. So, Craig, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know how busy you are, and you have a family to get to. But I did want to thank you for, for joining us and giving us this time. And I got to say, you know, I despite a couple maybe pointed questions, I'm a fan of what you're doing, and I am rooting for you. I am your, I'm your biggest fan because if you can fill that gap, it'll be such a wonderful development in this town because it has been, there, it has been a dearth of real journalism. There's so few good ones out there in this town. So I do appreciate that you guys are putting this together, and I, I do look forward to watching you grow. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Justin. It was a lot of fun. Anytime. All right, wonderful. Craig Custance of The Athletic, editor-in-chief, formerly of ESPN, kind enough to join us. And, you know, I do recommend, guys, I would give it a um, one-month, you know, subscription. I would give it a shot. Yeah, I, I think they do good work. I do think there are articles they have out there that I'm not a fan of. I think they've made some questionable decisions with some of their – I don't know if it's hires or just sort of glorified internships, or if it's a one-off or what. But there have been some questionable moves there. Uh, but overall, you know, sort of at the top of the mountain with Craig and Katie's work, look, everyone's got to make their own decision with their dollar. For me, it's worth it. I, they are better than anything in town. So if anyone wants to tell you that there's no value added with The Athletic, I don't know what, what they're reading because the pieces that they've come out with are more thought out, are, are just better written technically than anything you're going to get from Anthony Fennick at the Detroit Free Press, a lot of the writers at the Detroit News, Chris McCoskey. So I do want to see them grow. I want to see a little bit more out of them. But I would just give them a shot for a month. And, hey, if it's not your bag, so be it. Maybe you check in again in six months because the website will be a lot different. But I, I don't get the animosity for the athletic. I think they're trying to do something good. And you have the right to make that call yourself. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that we definitely need in this town, a, a better source uh, of information uh, regarding these teams because it has been one softball question after another. I like to call the reporters in this town uh, press conference stenographers 
basically what most of them do is just sit there at the press conference for these teams, take down notes of what they say. They basically jog down a bunch of notes of the quotes, and then they go and they plug them into their laptop and add two or three nondescript paragraphs to complete the column, and then they press send. I mean, that's we have a bunch of press conference stenographers. So what I'm looking for from the athletic challenge authority, it's not about – you know, saying Ken Holland's a piece of crap. I mean, it's, it's not about that. You know, you can be analytical and critical. So, I mean, and I, I said that to Craig. Craig said, you know, oh, we're not really in that hot take business. You know, we're more into the uh, long form analytical, the numbers stuff. I don't see how those two are in conflict. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I told Craig that. I, I, I hope that he can see where those two ideas merge, where you can do a great analytical piece and also say, God, Ken Holland is terrible and probably got to go. So, frankly, we saw Bob Wojnarowski and a number of other people call for Brady Hoke's job at Michigan in print. So, if the very low bar of the Detroit News and Detroit Free Press is being cleared, where they're willing to make these challenges, and you're trying to be better from a journalist perspective, Craig's got to tell his shop or do it himself, look, you know, when these situations call for it, we're going to do it. And we're going to make that that editorial decision to print a calling for someone's job. It's not about vindictiveness. It's not about a hot take or satisfying the angry mob. There are times where it's it's time to go. So I did, I did appreciate Craig joining us. And look, I'm not just blowing smoke up my audience's butt. I think Craig is one of the best writers in the entire business. I think he's a, a fine journalist and he has sources all over the league. I think we are lucky to have him. He's got to do a little bit better getting this ship on track with how they challenge the subjects that they're covering. A little bit better. He's not terrible. There have been pieces, but it's got to get a little bit better. And I hope it does. I'm not throwing any dirt on them. I, I, I like what they've done overall. But there are some gaps there, and I hope to, to see those closed. So we are going to move on to our last segment, the winners and losers of today. So um, we do, again, appreciate Craig Custance of The Athletic Detroit joining us and uh, also John Wharton as well. The guests were really wonderful. So let's move on to our winners and losers. For the winner today, we have, for the first time, one of the best journalists in the city, Justin Rogers of the Detroit News, Lions writer, does an excellent job. Really, the Detroit Lions writers in this town are the cream of the crop. They are the best of the four major teams. Justin Rogers had an article today with the headline, quote, good riddance to Lions playoff appearance banners, end quote. Couldn't have said it any better myself. Justin Rogers write, uh, writing a great story on the Detroit Lions' decision to remove the multiple playoff appearance banners from the rafters at Ford Field. Certainly one of the more embarrassing aspects of this organization that are occurring off the field, and that list is long. Justin Rogers said, farewell, to a celebration of mediocre accomplishment, a meaningful and necessary step as the organization pushes for a higher standard under the leadership of owner Martha Ford, general manager Bob Quinn, and President Rod Wood. Well said. I mean, it's, it is a farewell to an embarrassing sign of this organization's ineptitude. So Justin Rogers, I'm not going to quote the entire article, but basically wrote a great piece in the Detroit News talking about how ridiculous this thing was in the first place, the idea that you're hanging banners for qualifying for the playoffs, something that nearly half the team does. And you look at 
it's the self-esteem of organizations in sports and the difference. Like, for example, the Montreal Canadiens don't hang division title banners, I believe. I think it's, it's either them or Toronto. There's, there's certain organizations in sports. You know, the Yankees are never going to hang a division banner or fly a flag for a division win. The real organizations in sports don't celebrate that type of a thing. The Detroit Lions, their banners are bare because they haven't won anything since the 1950s, since 30 years before I was born. So I understand why they feel the need to put something there. It's a little bare. But, you know, you're almost better off doing the Palace of Auburn Hills thing and, you know, retiring Bob Seeger's number and putting the number of sellouts he's had. You know, just, just put Beyonce up there or something. She's sold out a couple of Ford Field concerts. Anything but a playoff appearance banner, an absolute embarrassment. So good for Justin Rogers. You know, it's not easy to call out the, the subject that you're covering, and that's something that has plagued this town for a long time where teams just have a free ride. There's no better example than the Detroit Tigers, who are barely covered at all by Chris McCoskey and Lynn Henning, and really by anybody who has touched them for the last 25 years. It's kitty gloves. Justin Rogers is calling out the Detroit Lions organization and saying, hey, you know, they did the right thing, but by the way, this was really embarrassing. I guess good on the Lions. I mean, it's tough to say, hey, great job stopping that embarrassing thing you were doing. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say, great job, Lions. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's your 17th day doing crack cocaine, and I'm not going to throw a parade for you on the 18th, you know, where you stopped. So, you know, I guess good on the Lions, but more good on Justin Rogers for holding his team to the fire, something we've seen from him repeatedly. And he did a great job reporting on this. I mean, he, I, I thought he brought some interesting quotes, really, from the Detroit Lions management you know, Rod Wood said, quote, we took them down as part of the renovation. We'd rather just celebrate the next division win and not put them back up. I'm setting my sights on winning divisions and championships, not just making the playoffs. We'll see how it actually plays out, but, you know, at least they have the right idea and those embarrassing banners are gone. So good for you, Justin Rogers. You get the winner of the day award. We will be sending you absolutely nothing in the mail, but my highest praise. And that moves us to today's loser. Also, the first time in this segment for him, Pat Caputo of 97 won the ticket. Now, Pat, we're staying on the Lions here. It's been a Lions-heavy show sandwiching the meat that was the hockey segment. Pat Caputo had some strong opinions on Calvin Johnson, something we talked a little bit about in the opening segment. I'm going to just let him talk, and then we'll break it down. Please run the Pat Caputo clip. 4986. That was the Lions record when Calvin Johnson played for the Lions. Uh, Calvin Johnson, three passes in the 2013 season. If he catches any one of those three passes to him against Tampa Bay, another one against the Ravens, their entire season might have been different. They started out 6-3. and three. Calvin Johnson, the fumble in Seattle in the end zone. Calvin Johnson missed three games in 2014. They won all three of those games. Uh, Calvin Johnson, you know, he had a terrific career, and I feel almost bad saying things like this, but he really should calm down with his comments. Nobody wants to defend the Lions. Everybody understands their issues. They're terrible. But Calvin Johnson was somebody that walked away from the game at the right time. It should be a very distinguished time for him. And he hasn't exactly been stand-up. I mean, comments in Italy and at a football camp, uh, he's tarnishing his legacy as far as I'm concerned. Well, as much as Calvin Johnson cares about your concern for his legacy, Pat, you're in the loser column for a number of reasons. First, you're bringing up random games where Calvin Johnson didn't catch a pass. 
and you're, you're isolating these, these games and singling him out as somehow responsible for the Lions missing the playoffs. Games where he was no doubt blanketed by not only the best corner on the other team, but a safety cheating over for help. As many as three guys responsible for Calvin Johnson at the peak of his career in certain games. You're isolating Calvin Johnson. Calvin Johnson is the problem. Calvin Johnson's a reason, perhaps the reason, according to you, that this team ever missed the playoffs? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, Pat. And any limitations that Calvin Johnson may have had in a single game or quarter or half or whatever was more than made up for on a long enough timeline of a 16-game season. Okay. To put this on Calvin Johnson that this team missed the playoffs or he had a fumble here – Calvin Johnson is one of the greatest players in the history of professional sports, one of the most singularly dominant. Now, you can talk about guys like Craig Biggio in baseball who were B-minus to B-plus players for 25 years. I mean, they were just there forever, and they're a Hall of Famer, and they get all the praise. Okay, no, Calvin Johnson did not have the longevity maybe required to be truly among the greats in the public eye. But in terms of his peak, lasting for perhaps five or six seasons where he was at the absolute best. You're talking about one of the best athletes in the history of professional sports, not just football and certainly not just in the history of this town or its organization that he played for. So this isolating this this random fumble here or game there, it's asinine. It's a bad job by Pat. And you want to talk about his legacy. Calvin Johnson is hurting his legacy. He's not being a, quote, stand-up guy, as you said. Calvin Johnson did everything right and didn't ruffle any feathers and just sat there and took this crap organization's conduct and managerial style on the chin for like a decade. Calvin Johnson was the ultimate soldier, and he's finally freed from that camp. He's finally out of the shackles of the Detroit Lions. And what happens? You shake him down for money. Just because you're contractually obligated to that million dollars of his signing bonus that you saw and successfully obtained doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. People say, oh, oh, the Lions had every right to get that money from Calvin Johnson that they hounded him down for and threatened to sue him over if he didn't fork it over. Yeah, they had every contractual right. There's a lot of things you have a contractual right to do and you just don't do it. You know, we have a a family business we've had for years. We had an employee many, many years ago do something uh, bad off the job. I'm not going to get into it, but I will say we had every right to terminate that employee and not give them a cent. What did we do? We ended up giving them a great severance package. Why? Because they had given 20 years of service to the business and had been a great employee. And we were in a position where we had to terminate them. That really wasn't a choice. So we had no reason that we had to give them a severance package, but it was the right thing to do for an employee that made a mistake that had to go, but needed, you know, something in the interest of fairness, at least morally as an employer, the Detroit lions could have very easily walked away from that million dollars. They felt they were owed and just had this relationship be splendid despite all of their ineptitude. But no, the multi-billion dollar corporation had to shake down Calvin Johnson. And now we have people like Pat Caputo calling him out for it. It's just, it's terrible stuff. Yes, thank you everyone out there saying that Calvin Johnson, the Detroit Lions had a right to the million dollars. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you and your law degrees were here to examine the contract and inform everyone. That's not the point. There's a lot of things in life you have the right to do but shouldn't. And that's the perfect example with Calvin Johnson and the Detroit Lions. So, Pat, 
who I think Pat's a great guy. I, I don't have anything against Pat personally, but he kicked this one. I mean, this was just a, a terrible take from top to bottom, and it is contributing to the perception of Calvin Johnson being tainted, which I think is just ridiculous. So anyway, Pat Caputo is your loser of the day, and again, Justin Rogers was the winner. We are going to wrap up this episode of the Spiro Avenue podcast. A special thank you to former Detroit Red Wings trainer John Wharton for joining us for a riveting segment. And also thank you to editor-in-chief at The Athletic Detroit, Craig Custance, for joining us for an interview to talk about the Detroit Red Wings and his new project in the city of Detroit. Uh, We should have a show for you. Hopefully by Friday we are working on a couple of guests. I will not tease them out because we do not have them booked yet. But we hope to be back in a couple of days. We appreciate you listening. And as always, a special thank you to our producer, Jed Schilling, who is the best in town. And if you try to hire him away from me, I will be very sad. So stay tuned. We will be back in a couple days. Thank you again. This has been Justin Spiro for the Spiro Avenue podcast.